Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we're kicking off season three with a very special conversation with Tommy Caldwell. I think Tommy needs no introduction. Um, if you're a climber that reads the Climbing Zine and listens to this podcast, um, you undoubtedly know who Tommy Caldwell is. And um, I think it, the interesting thing to interview him is, is we think we know these people, um, but really there's so much more to learn. And I try to ask Tommy questions in this interview that he's not already previously been asked. And the one thing that really struck me about Tommy he comes from that same era that I do. He's 43. I'm 43. Um, when dirt packing was really, really part of climbing. And it was interesting to see that Tommy had sponsorships that paid him like $50 a month back in the day when he was still climbing harder than a lot of people um, are climbing today that are, you know, pretty well paid professional climbers. And it's all part of the journey of climbing. Um, but the one thing that really struck me is that Tommy's always been putting in work first. And he's never sought out fame. In fact, it seems like he would prefer not to be famous. But he uses his spotlight um, to advocate for climate. He's a climate activist. He's an environmental activist. And he's a really good human being. And it inspired me to try harder, to work harder, and to be a better person. And um, I know that's a cliche of a statement, but I've really been taking that to heart. And I'm really inspired by Tommy Caldwell. If you enjoy this podcast, we've been we put out over 50 episodes now, and um, now we need your support. It was kind of this labor of love that we wanted to get it out there into the world and see what happened. And people are listening. Um, I don't want to try to compare my podcast to any other climbing podcast. I know so many more have so many more downloads. Um, but if you appreciate this and you've gotten anything out of it, please support us on Patreon with uh, you know kind of a dollar amount that you feel like you're getting out of this. We just got back on there trying to structure it to uh, get you rewards. You can pick up some zines and um, some stickers in there by supporting us. And you can also support us in our online store. And we got a link for 15% off in our show notes. But yeah, that's my message to you. If you enjoy this, please support us. And uh, all those links are in your show notes. This episode is sponsored by Osprey Packs. Osprey and the Climbing Zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado and the infinite outdoor opportunities that exist here. To find out more, visit osprey.com. This episode is also sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter Board. The Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app, and animated functions with climbs for all abilities. It also has two layouts to choose from with large online communities for each. There are over 50,000 problems in the original Kilter Board layout, and the new Homeboard layout comes with over 4,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, Watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help get you a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Edelrid. These days I've got more Edelrid gear on my rack than ever before. Really love the bulletproof carabiners with the steel inserts on aluminum carabiners. They work super great for anchor draws that get really worn on the first bolt on a sport climb and for belay devices. I've also got a swift protect rope in the 70 meter and 80 meter, and it's by far the best thin rope that I've ever used. Edelrid is also committed to lowering their chemical usage, lowering their CO2 emissions, and overall just being a more sustainable company. For more information on Edelrid, visit climbgreen.com and check our show notes. And let's get into this conversation with Tommy Caldwell. Oh. Sitting here with Tommy Caldwell and his man outside his house, Sean Metasavage here in the background. Special yes. guest. Yeah, I just wanted to start off this conversation just by thanking you. 
in many ways, like you've done little buddy blurbs for like our Squeak, our uh, our children's book that we publish, and you've done our Edelrid ads for this season of the podcast. But on a greater note, I just feel like you, you know, before we turn the mics on, um, Sean and I are both 43, you're 43. You've kind of been there the whole trajectory for our climbing career. And you've been just a great person and a great ambassador for our sport. So I just kind of wanted to start off just just by thanking you for being who you are. Yeah, well, uh, start me off with a big blush. Thank you <laughs> so much for that. I thought I was psyched to be doing this in person. Now I'm kind of wishing we were uh, still over the internet. But you Right, know. yeah. we. Uh, I really <laughs> want to do this in person. And uh, we went back and forth and finally got up here to, to make it happen. Drove through a snowstorm to, to be here and... Um, everything like that but i also told you my mission is to try to ask you 90 percent of questions that maybe you don't get asked all the time because your story is very documented i i was in uh, gunnison we started off in gunnison today and i was in this little um uh, deli that we love to go to it has a breakfast spot too and i have the climbing zine out and there's this lady she's probably like 92 years old and she's a librarian there at the college or she was a librarian now she's retired and just hanging out and i was telling her and the owner of the restaurant who I was interviewing and they didn't know who you were. And I just like told them a bit of your life story and their eyes are just like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, yeah, he got kidnapped in Kyrgyzstan and then he chopped off his finger and then went on to be, you know, arguably the most successful big wall climber of all time. So I know your story is, is very well documented and, and we've grown up with you and you've kind of always been that guy, um, but we've also seen a progression, but I want to start off. I mean, the Don wall, you, you've talked about the Don wall forever. But I have the feeling from, you know, seeing presentations of yours and, and other things like that, when you started up that last attempt of the Donwall, you had no idea it would turn into the spectacle that it was. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, certainly not. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. nothing that I don't think that really happened in climbing. And I don't even know if I really wanted it to happen, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just total fluke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there was like the first ascent of the nose where they they were or the uh, the other they were, the doll of uh, the wall of early morning light with Harding where the newscasters were covering it and stuff but never like checking your instagram and seeing how you know some how you were doing on the don wall yeah i think social media brought in this like opportunity for it to go crazy go super broad and this like i mean people followed along with it real time for like several weeks yeah. through social media worldwide um I mean, I guess you're right. Like that kind of happened with Harding, I guess, probably mm-hmm. in a way. And El Cap seems to draw big time attention, kind of like Mount Everest or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I'm wrong about that, but it felt to me like a like a different thing in climbing than I certainly had ever heard of or experienced firsthand. Yeah, yeah, and I can speak for myself. I know Sean was there too. Like we were just rooting for you, and it was just it was so fun to just like follow that along and but there was that thing in my mind is like what are these guys doing like they're you're like documenting it in real time but then looking back on it it's just so cool but i kind of wanted to start off um with your other climbs of el capitan because the dawn wall was a progression of what 12 to 15 free routes that you had done on el cap yeah i think like yeah like 11 or 12 maybe that wasn't like number 11 or 12 of the free routes i had done so i'd been climbing on there for 15 years before even trying like kind of primarily focused on climbing on el cap for like 15 years before i even started up the donimal i'm I'm just kind of curious like what were some of the most like other challenging climbs i know like the dihedral wall was another 514 right yeah i mean gosh they were all so unique and crazy in different ways like that's why i kept going back time after time because every time you free climb that thing it's like this incredibly dramatic you know life event that just feels so so big you know and so like dramatic and exciting but i don't know like the salathe still stands out in so many ways for me because it was my first one and it was the one that I went to, like, I, that was my first route on El Cap, even. I tried to free climb it when I was, like, 17 with my dad without having n- no, you know, no idea what I was doing. And um, just got completely bouted and, like, ran a, ran away with my tail between my legs. I'm like, El Cap sucks. It's too big. I'm never going to be able to climb this thing. But then kind of got, like, re, you know, got got under my skin a little bit and I came back and eventually figured it out. So that one will forever be, like, one of my favorite experiences in climbing but in terms of like other 
hard routes. The dihedral wall, wall was really, yeah, really hard. I was like right after Kyrgyzstan in this crazy place mm-hmm. of just going up there all by myself for like a month and a half or something and just like working so hard and climbing something that was super, super difficult from almost bottom to top. And then Magic Mushroom was another like really hard one, and it's pretty cool. People have like started to repeat those. And... Right? Has the dihedral wall seen it repeat? Yeah, yeah. Your Yorg Beethoven. He did the fourth ascent of the nose too, right? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did the yeah. fourth ascent of the nose, and then he did the dihedral wall as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how? What was talking about the nose? Like you did the second, you embedded the second and third ascents. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was kind of late in that fifteen years actually, because. We were always just like, there's so many people up here. Like the nose is so crowded. There's all, you know, during high season, there's like, you know, up to eight, sometimes 10 parties. And we're just like, how are we going to deal with that? Like, uh-huh. that just seems so crazy. But then when we decided to just go and deal with it, the people were almost the highlight in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we would, we would, there were, we spent about three weeks working on the, the crux pitch, the changing corners pitch, camping on top okay. of El Cap that whole time. So not the great roof. The great roof we the... did, I did a second try. It was like not oh, wow. that hard actually gotcha. compared to the changing corners and the uh-huh. changing corners. I mean, like what Lynn did, we 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 built like incredible respect for what Lynn Hill did. She rated it 13B. Now it's up to mm-hmm. 14B, I think. Dang. She was just so good, and it was and it's crazy hard technical climbing, and so it took us three weeks to figure that one out. And so for those three weeks, we would we were camping on top of El Cap. We had like a 200 meter rope we would just lower it down from the top of el cap every day and it would just land right on camp six which is the base of the changing corners and we'd zip down there and every day for three weeks there'd be a different party uh-huh. sitting on camp six <laughs> and so we you know we'd do it super early in the morning because that's when the shade is there so we'd mm-hmm. sort of like get to camp six right as the sun was coming up and they were kind of getting out of bed and we'd sit there and top rope belay each other and one of us would be standing there like you know kind of right next to these people in bed yeah. that had been <laughs> that had been climbing the nose for you know who knows how long three to eight days to get to that point and almost every single one of them was um it was some crazy it was their you, most people that climb the nose it's their first big wall um they have like suffered incredibly to get there they're having some crazy life experience they're in middle the middle of like they're like super vulnerable mm-hmm. we had you know we saw people who had you know we saw this japanese crew for instance that had like not even brought climbing shoes because they just just didn't know what they were doing and their feet were thrashed and they were like jumaring in socks <laughs> you know just like botching it so hard um but we would get their story and just hang out and talk to them and they they would kind of come to life because they they you know they would see us free climbing and that would just be such this wild experience for them and i really really wish that i would have um like taken a picture of each party and written an article about it like i really kind of botched it there i didn't i didn't write back then i wasn't really a photographer but it would have been an incredible thing to do yeah um i mean you you said and i think uh when you're commenting on the permit system um in yosemite just the volumes and volumes of stories um that has ha- have happened up there and the characters you run into what are some stories that maybe you haven't told as much that are like super memorable of characters or your own experiences that maybe just like something on a cra- crazy hard pitch that didn't get as, as publicized or yeah, yeah. whatever? I mean, so I wrote I wrote that book. I wrote The Push and the kind of most standout stories I put in there. So but there's some other ones like when I first um, started climbing on El Cap and, and did the you know, some of the first routes I did, like the Salathe and the Muir Wall or the shaft variation to the Muir Wall. Um, there was this guy, Scotty Burke, who was working on the nose that whole time. He put like 260 days or something into climbing the nose and he finally did it. And then he was working on other routes for a while after that. I don't think he did any other ones, but he was like this crazy character who would do t- tons of drugs up there and he'd always like have like, some like, uh, psychedelics and stuff yeah, or, yeah, yeah yeah and he'd always have some really young like subby up there <laughs> that he'd just be he would just lure them up there by making them burritos and giving them candy bars and drugs essentially for a while it was scotty burke this is actually how or no for a while this was leo holding this is actually how leo holding like oh, learned how to climb out no kidding wow <laughs> yeah it was with scotty burke uh-huh. um and so i would run into him and he'd always just like 
you know, I run into him on ledges here and there and up on the wall. He had this crazy RV and he was just, you know, always, always in spandex and he was just always super high on some kind of <laughs> drug. And, um, like a, a throwback to, uh, Jim Bridwell's yeah. era of doing psychedelics on El Cap. And I mean, Bridwell, I think was pretty well known for tripping and, yeah. and leading a five or whatever. And, yeah. I mean, or maybe was, the stories are bigger than what was actually true, but it seems like that was pretty well documented of that was going on. Well, I think yeah. all the aid climbers back then, that's kind of, that was kind of the MO. I mean, all those routes like Mescalito and Tangerine trip and like all those are named after. That makes sense. I never <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> are named after drugs. So, um, yeah, he was always, but he was always like, even though he was super high, he was like super welcoming. He'd always mm-hmm. give me chocolate covered espresso beans <laughs> And, um, and he kind of mentored me. I, I never like climbed with him, but he was always like giving me advice. And so it was just really fun to run into him and he stopped coming for a while. And then his dad would, his dad would come and like hang out in Yosemite and watch him climb. But then Scotty stopped coming and his dad just stuck around and hung out in (laughs) camp Four, Leo. Uh Um, and so he became this fixture in camp Four for a long time. And when you say it was like a, Scotty was a throwback, it was kind of, he wasn't really even a throwback. It was like still kind of going that way back then. There was a lot of aid climbing going on, a lot of drug usage. It was still kind of the old day, like climber climbing was so colorful in Yosemite back then. Like there Mm -hmm. was people like that doing a lot of drugs. And then there was, you know, people like Dean Potter Mm -hmm. or these big, um, kind of ego characters and you know, they were always like getting in fights and threatening to punch each other and it was just like so contentious but also so lovely it was just like you know it's almost like the way i imagine like an italian family or something like they're just like so <laughs> hot-headed all the time and like yelling at each other but then making up and hugging each other and the whole scene was just so kind of crazy and i thought it was really interesting and i would kind of vacillate between thinking it was cool and just trying to like get away from it completely because it was a bit much i was pretty low-key person yeah i I kind of felt like i didn't fit in yeah i was too much of a square i didn't Mm. feel like i fit in completely um but i was i was like um it was fun to be a spectator of it and then and then climbing in Yosemite became like kind of money started to come into it. Like, it, like the Hubers sort of changed it in a way they came, they started to, you know, free climb all these routes. They made, they spent, I think three or four seasons making this movie about speed climbing the nose and they would have this big film crew and they started hiring all that. They called them, the, you know, they, the, the main Valley contingent that lived there called themselves the monkeys at that time. And they started hiring, hiring all the monkeys to, carry loads at the top of El Cap and so people actually had money for the first time and then most of the monkeys went and learned how to base jump with that money in Lodi because Lodi, California, which is only like two hours away is the cheapest place to skydive in the world and so um, yeah, they all started base jumping and then like half of them died base jumping and maybe more most of them died base jumping actually which is kind of crazy, it took out huge, huge contingent of the monkeys so i was kind of glad i never got into base jumping (laughs) and uh yeah it was just such a different time than it is now 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 people like and people barely climbed back then i mean scotty (laughs) was climbing but most people would just come and they would like maybe do one route a season or something and they would just hang out in the deli and in camp four and just talk smack (laughs) and now people come to yosemite from europe and they like get it done they have this mission they go up on el cap and they they like send hard and there's so much excitement around it back then el cap was like the hubers and me and then lynn had climbed before that and then um you know like of course todd skinner and paul piano but it was like one ascent of el cap every three years or something (laughs) and now you get like one free ascent of el cap every three years and now you get like 20 every season or something right totally totally yeah and yeah it is interesting to think about the money aspect of climbing and i've kind of like thought about your trajectory like your trajectory of an athlete is incredible because i mean you've been a climber for so long but you kind of hit your peak and we're saying that the dawn wall is like your peak <laughs> achievement in your life which i you know before we turn the mics on you you agreed with that sean thinks that you maybe you got more in you you, you got <laughs> something harder um than the dawn wall but your your trajectory is so crazy so you're 36 37 when you have your your biggest achievement and then 
you know, talking about money and, and different sponsorships and things like that, I'm guessing that that really helped the trajectory of your career. And then having a family, it, it, it helped, I'm guessing that it helped your career to have this achievement at like your peak performance at what, 30, 36, 37 years old. It helped my career. Yeah. I mean, I never aspired, like being a professional climber wasn't even a thing when I was a kid, really. I mean, right, maybe yeah. some like mountaineers, you know? Yeah. And maybe Lynn Hill kind of, cause she had been yeah. really successful in the competitions. But uh-huh. I, it, was, it wasn't. Th- it wasn't like I'm gonna become a professional climber. Mm-hmm. It was just like um, I really like love climbing, and so I'm gonna do it as much as I can. And for a while, that was like dumpster diving and living on like you know I had this blue water sponsorship way back in the day that I got fifty dollars a month, and that was like my total income. Fifty dollars a month. Yeah, and that's what I lived off of for a bunch, a bunch of years out of my Honda Accord. Wow. This was kind of like pre-El Cap almost when I was mostly sport climbing. Yeah. And so I like lived that full dirtbag life. And so that's why I went to Yosemite because that's 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 where you could kind of, you know, all the systems for living off of no money were in place there Mm. and all the best climbing was there in a way. So when I got out of high school, that's when I started to go to Yosemite and really kind of fell in love with that with that place. But then like the business of climbing started to grow and I started to make more money. And Mm. and then I found but I never really like seeked it out like I wasn't mm-hmm. like writing sponsors and looking for sponsorship I wasn't mm-hmm. like looking for um money per se mm-hmm. um it's was, it was almost like making sponsorship I for a long time I felt of it as like selling out mm-hmm. and so a few times when I when I started to get sponsored I remember like Dean Potter for instance he like defriended me I mean, you, couldn't, <laughs> you didn't have you didn't have social media back then but right he blacklisted me and I couldn't even right. hang out with that guy for a bunch of years and um and so i felt weird about it for a while and then and then at some point i'm like why do i feel weird about this this is sweet like i'm actually starting to like i can actually do this full time for a long time and then at some point i'm like i can actually like have a family and do this i could buy a house and do this like this is incredible so i've always just felt so incredibly lucky to be where i am just because it's always been more and better than i really ever thought in terms of like the professional climbing thing Mm -hmm. wow that's that's incredible and that seems like the purest intent of for what you do um i mean do you think there was any value in those days or do you just like of do, do you think that is there like a romanticism of that era or do you think that was kind of like a dark ages of climbing, figuring out its personality? Oh, for me, it was, no, there's a huge romanticism. Like yeah. life is so complicated now, you know, yeah. and back then life was incredibly simple. Like all the things I have in the fam, like I love all that stuff, but I also like, I, I really miss the simplicity of just going out and climbing every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm like I never like wish to go back there. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I think about those days very fondly. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the same thing. Like the those dirtbag days are like you just you don't have them back, and it's it's so it's different now because there is like technology and things that almost kind of take the edge off a little bit of of the kind of suffering, I guess, for lack of a better word, of just being out there with yourself and your thoughts. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, I still. You know, up to now, I've still gone on expeditions like one a year or something where I go and I'm totally off the map for like a month. Mm-hmm. I go to Alaska or go to, you know, Patagonia or something and mm-hmm. and just not really even have technology. And I, I feel like I come back to life in a way like on the Donwall, like when I dropped my phone, I, I've always right. felt that way. I was like getting rid of that technology. And then this winter I was in Vegas, like sitting in Alex Honnold's hot tub at his place in Vegas <laughs> and we're looking to the east and seeing the the uh Starlink satellites launch up into the sky from um, from LA there, and I, we didn't even know what it was at first. We we're like, "What is this like freeway going into the sky?" And so I started to like Google it. We all started to look around. We're like, "Oh, this is this like new internet system," and it struck me that within a year or something you're going to be able to go anywhere on the planet and be able to have like high speed inter- internet from like anywhere. And I'm like, that's sad, actually. <laughs> I totally agree. I mean, I've, yeah. I've put this in my writing that I think there should be advocates for areas without yeah. cell phone service. Totally. And I, I, I feel like people are missing out. Like We naturally kind of get that, like go to the creek on the weekends and stuff, and there's not really much service out there. And I'm sure there's places you go where there's not service. And it's like, 
almost depend on that for like my mental health. Dude. Yeah, like, you got eight months, and then everybody's gonna fucking be fucking Elon. In there, in we were there. talking, we were saying good things about <laughs> Elon today, but yeah, he's <laughs> he's got some. I mean, it'll have to be a choice, right? Like, right, you, yeah. you, you can choose to. It's not like a have sat it. phone kind of thing. Or yeah, and, yeah, you know, and when I first did my first expeditions, like I wouldn't even bring a sat phone. I was like, that was a thing. You'd go on these expeditions, and like if you were sat phone free, it was like more pure. But then they made the. Um, like the spot trackers and stuff. Right, and yeah. I've always been into those mm-hmm. because once those were invented, once I already had a family. And so at mm-hmm. least I can like tell them that I'm not dead. <laughs> so I've, right. you know, you slowly get used to it. And I'm sure mm-hmm. like my kids will think that not that inter- that they won't even think the internet that the, that ha- that having internet everywhere is a bad thing. Like, right. Just get used to it. You yeah. Know? It's like knee pads or something. I <laughs> used to be like, so. <laughs> <laughs> or stick clips? Yeah. <laughs> or stick clips. Yeah, totally. You got you got you gotta you gotta look to the future, I guess, and figure yeah. out how to embrace it. <laughs> God, I do just think there's a benefit of turning off the cell phone though. Yeah, we're such like, Luddites. Yeah, know? we are. I, I guess we're <laughs> We're all here thirty seven talking about the good yeah. old times. <laughs> Jeez. Um was Chris Sharma on the Don Wall at one point? He did, yeah. He came up with me a little bit. Yeah. Well, was it true that he left when he ran out of weed, or was that a joke? That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, do you remember that? <laughs> he doesn't he, like. I, I think I told that. Maybe you saw me say that. If I point in two thousand, uh, yeah, probably fifteen. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. it got back to him, and he called me one point, and, be, and he was like, "Don't, don't." He's, he like felt bad. He, I mean, he's like, "Yeah, I know that's kind of true, but like, I don't want, I don't want you saying that." <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, sorry, Sharma. <laughs> we might have to. We'll don't see watch you, the rampage from nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we had an amazing week up there. He came for like a week though and yeah. he brought his buddy Andy, which is like his hippie friend from uh-huh. when he was a child from Santa Cruz. Oh, I love that. And um we just it was like one of my favorite weeks. We we always had these vi- this wasn't really known. We always had like I would always bring visitors up on the Don Wall cuz we had fixed ropes and like a yeah. portal edge camp and I was yeah. like people that haven't been on El Cap like they can just come on El Cap and hang out and belay me and they'll have like this life experience and oh, so We should have done that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> just teach them how to Jumar and they can just go up to the middle yeah. of the cap and hang out. So there was a friend, uh, this guy, Cooper Blackhurst. He was like this former Stanford football player that came up for a week one, one time and wow. just like hang out at the, on the portal edge and belayed us. And then we did the, uh, the port swing at the top with him where you do like the 60 meter free fall right off the top of El Cap. And <laughs> these, I mean, these people would come and have this week and they would, you know, it was like bond us forever. And in, in some ways, like it was pretty fun to expose people to the, this crazy world, this vertical world through that. Did Charmel like help you figure out anything? Uh, you know, he has this ability to just try like savagely hard all the time. So I brought him up there because I thought that we, Kevin and I hadn't been able to do the big dino on the Don Juan. I was like, right. Chris Sharma is going to be able to do this. Like he's the one yeah. that's going to be able to show us that this can be done. And he couldn't do it actually. But while Chris was there, Kevin managed to do it. And Kevin's still the only one that's ever done it, right? Because Andre did the down climb. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that was, I mean, I think Chris likes that kind of climbing. So he saw us trying it in in the dosage video or one of the, yeah, you know, one of the videos. And he's yeah. like, that's when he called me. He's like, I want to come and try. That looks awesome. But the whole, um, I the whole the whole prospect of climbing, like climbing on El Cap, is pretty blue collar, mm-hmm. right? And Chris is. He's not really like that blue collar. He likes to hang out in the sun in Spain and just send hard. But who, he who did could blame him. <laughs> there, there was like the third. I remember there was a few thirteen plus pitches that Kevin and I would. We spent a lot of time just trying to like work out every little detail and climb them perfectly. Mm-hmm. But it was taking us forever. And I remember mm-hmm. Chris showed up and just started like power screaming his way through these moves and just like doing the pitches like in a couple tries and we're like maybe that's the way maybe we don't need to work out every move we just need to try hard and chris has always kind of inspired me in that way even when i was young like he just would try so hard and get so good because of that and i just i need to like bump into that zone again sometimes especially as an old man you you try and like think your way through it whereas at some point you just gotta go for it and chris is so good at that this um, is kind of fun. You're like dancing around questions that have been asked, but you're like, <laughs> yes. you, are, you are. You're like getting to ones that I haven't really talked about that much. This is fun. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's like the same topics, but different, like slightly different things. I love it. I mean, how did the film actually come about? Because in in the other thing I wanted to thank you for 
you've really improved, and Free Solo has two, you've improved like the aunt and uncle conversation. For years, <laughs> my, my aunt and uncle, you're like a climber. The only point of reference is National Geographic or that commercial with the portal edge in it, the credit card commercial. You guys remember that? Yeah. And, and, then, and, and, and most of the time you're on like, you're a climber, meaning you're kind of like a vagabond and a loser. And now, <laughs> now, actually, now actually aunts and uncles are like, you're a climber, you're kind of rad. <laughs> exactly like they you're the post office lady she's like well is that what you do like in the don wall and i was like yeah you know pretty much <laughs> yeah totally. so like you you've really uh you've really really improved that um but yeah so how did how did the film come about because i i, I gotta imagine that's kind of changed your life the media surrounding the don wall was like in several phases right like mm-hmm. the climb happened and that was crazy and then like and that felt like the craziest like right afterwards i was traveling all over like meeting with agents and doing you know corporate speaking gigs and going on talk shows and stuff so that was like the craziest moment you were in ellen weren't you yeah yeah <laughs> my mom sent me that yeah link, that was I think. such a weird time <laughs> right and then um and then i wrote my book and then like i did a big tours with that and so that was like kind of another slightly more minor moment and then the movie came out and that's it didn't feel like a really crazy thing in the time when the movie came out, but all of a sudden, every, you know, everybody watches TV. And so everywhere I went, people would recognize me after wow. the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you it, still it, get it, that. Yeah. yeah like yeah. even, you know, I was just in Florida with, uh, you know, visiting the grandparents in Fort Myers, Florida, the farthest place from Clarence, all retired people. And I was still, I was getting like recognized on the beach down there still. That's crazy, this many years dude. later. So it's still like that. Wow. Um, so that well, changed. people still watch it. Like, I obviously, like, I feel like even just being on airplanes, like, you see someone watching The Alpinist or Free Solo or The Don Juan, you almost want to, like, start talking to him, you know? But it's, like, it's kind of normal for people to just, like, be watching these movies because they're on your Netflix. Yeah, like, it's, like a, yeah. it's like a genre now. Like, people, yeah. they're like, there's these climbing films, and they're all really good. I mean, that's climbing filmmakers are great filmmakers. Yeah. They're really good. Like, the, the few people like Jimmy Chin and, you know, Peter Mortimer and... Um, and Josh, like those guys are so good at making films mm-hmm. and climbing is a great thing to write about. It's a great thing to make movies about. And so it's created this interest with people who never aspire to climb, but they just want to watch movies. But when you're asking how the film got made, where you're like wondering about how it changed my life or how did it come about in the first place? I mean, did it just kind of come about pretty naturally? Uh, yeah, you've been totally. In, in other yeah, films I've been, I've been and, hanging out yeah. with, I've been basically every major climb I've done for the last 25 years. Josh Lowell is a good friend of mine. He's always uh-huh. like, should we come film it? Like, just tell yeah. me when to come. And so even f- the first couple of years on the Donwall, when I thought there was no chance of me doing it, he's all, I'm always kind of talking to him. And he's like, oh, if you think this, you know, actually I gave up on the Donwall at one point. And then he's like, really? I want to make a movie about this anyways, even if you just gave up. Yeah. And so he came and I spent two weeks with him and a whole crew with a bunch of people up there. And I'd just been climbing up there mostly by myself. And so that kind of re-motivated me to go up there. And then their little film got Kevin involved. So making the film was always a huge part of it. Like, I mm-hmm. honestly don't know if it ever would have, like, I might have not done it if it weren't for the film. Because it got Kevin yeah. into it and it kind of got me in this mode of, like, making a community of people because i spent a couple years up there just by myself trying to do mm-hmm. it all by myself and it just didn't you know it was way more depressing yeah i mean that was really moving when your presentation in five point i know keep coming back to that but that that's when i like my respect level of respect to you kind of went to another level because you were very vulnerable about your whole experience of why you were up there and and what you were going through and that just like up my my level of respect for you um why would why would you say you you gave up on it because I'd been working on it for like three years or something at that point. Uh-huh. And I wasn't even close to doing it. And I was just like up there by myself, not doing any other climbing in my life or like, no, you know, I was, for a long time I felt this real pressure to like be producing, like sending stuff for my sponsors, like every year. And I was just spending all my time on, you know, on El Cap. I'm working on this thing that I never knew if it was going to come to be a thing. And then, and then I met Becca, my wife, and then we had a kid, and I'm still up there just kind of, like, <laughs> abandoning my family for, like, a month, a year. Um, they would come live in the valley, but, you know, even sometimes they'd be living down in the van, and I'd be up on the wall for, like, a week at a time, and I'd feel kind of bad. And so I was just like, is this worth it? Talking about being recognized, is, is there any of that part of that you don't like? I mean, I think 
none of it. So <laughs> you don't. You're not into it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've gotten used to it for sure. Yeah. And I yeah. and I can appreciate all the great things that it's brought to my life. But like, I am an like naturally an introvert, and mm-hmm. I just want to be by myself. Like, I mean, I think emotionally, I just like to be by myself. But mm-hmm. I, you know, when when I'm around great people, I you know, I realized that that's actually the better way. So it's, it's this weird thing. If I didn't have all these great people around me, I would just be a hermit. So when people recognize me, like my, my gut reaction, my kind of knee jerk reaction is to like be bummed that that's happening or kind of like try and drop my head or like, you know, I try and walk around airports almost like with my hood up and sunglasses on kind of thing. Um, I don't like that attention um, per se, but I can't appreciate the fact that like sometimes I meet people and it like makes their day just the fact that they ran into me and that's I mean you can't deny that that's that's a cool thing yeah my buddy Oli who was at the Climbers Fest with us this last year had watched your film and was like very moved by it and then he just like ran into you like you sat in our chair at our booth or something before you spoke yeah um I think before Shingo spoke or something but like yeah. I, I can't I can't imagine how much like positive impact you've had on the world just like doing your thing. Yeah. yeah. And then you're probably, you probably don't want to hear that because you're an introvert, <laughs> but like, I, I feel that like from the climbing community, I just feel like you've, you've done so much. And just like, I feel like that's what the world needs right now. It's just like positive energy and like good stories. And, and I feel like what the Dawn Wall did was it was just like a good story that wasn't some, there was no like angle of, even if people didn't truly understand it. Cause I think there's been many a sense that were like people that are up there for a while and this and that, and then they overcame, but for whatever reason, that one really hit home, and I feel that you know that was a few years ago. But I feel like even now, like people really need these like types of stories. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you know, one thing that I think is like I felt like I I hit climbing at this time where it's it felt really genuine, and now when there's so much media around climbing that like whenever somebody does a climb these days, people are like, did they do it because they wanted to do it, or did they do it because they it's a profession or because like they were they had expectations from other people or they were trying to be famous but the stories that really break through are the ones that feel really like genuine that's why i think the alpinist was so powerful it was about this guy who was just so obviously out there doing it because he really wanted to do it for himself which is weird because that's kind of selfish to just want to do it for yourself but there's something about it that just feels more pure and yeah yeah i wasn't i wasn't that I people were like talking that movie up, and I I hate it when a movie gets so talked up. And and when I watched it, I was like, I I I had like this emotional like first I felt nauseous in like that footage in the middle, and at the end I was just maybe I thought of my own friends that had passed, but I was like, yeah, that movie fucked me up, man. Like yeah, I was, sad. That, was, that was that fucked me up, but it was still a beautiful movie. And totally. Um, what did you think of Adam Andra's repeat of the Dawn Wall? I mean, it was it was awesome. Like I was uh, a total fan of it. Like mm-hmm. I kind like. I, w- I was just shocked that, like, he, I knew he's the best climber in the world. He's incredible at bouldering, incredible at sport climbing, incredible at competition climbing. But I thought it would take him longer to adjust <laughs> to big wall free climbing to, like, figure out how to use the gear. But Didn't he get benighted on the nose, so though? Bad. Well, yeah, he something? showed up in yeah. Yosemite, and, like, the first day during bad weather, <laughs> they decided to climb the nose and try and onsite it in a day, wow. ground up, okay. with his dad. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and they didn't get benighted on the route, actually. Oh, they, they just got they, yeah. They got the to the top, or, and it yeah. was snowing, and they they realized they couldn't go down the east ledges, yeah. and they didn't know that you could just walk the trail around. Okay. Yeah. And so they just spent the top <laughs> like huddling under a boulder, um, almost freezing to death up there. Yeah. Yeah, I read some some quote that he he kind of downplayed it. He's like, "Well, they did all the hard work and this and that," but that was when I first like because. That's when I first was like, oh, man, Adam Andre is, like, fucking legit. Yeah, no, he is so impressive. <laughs> so like, legit. So impressive. Yeah, it's, yeah, I'm always, I mean, I've I've never tried any of the hard sport routes that he's um, put up, but my impression is that he's just, like, miles and miles and miles better than I could ever really imagine. So the Donwell just like wasn't that hard for you know the moves themselves weren't that hard so he was able to kind of like focus his energy on figuring out the style and figuring out the gear and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and then it's sat kind of unrepeated since then, huh? Uh, yeah. Although right now there's an awesome, awesome attempt going on. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This uh, this guy Seb, he's Belgian. Um, oh yeah. He sailed from Europe to 
they wouldn't even let him into the United States. He ended up having to like dock in Mexico. They built a climbing wall on the sailboat so that he could train <laughs> while sailing across the ocean. <laughs> and so there's all this like amazing, he's like documenting it all on social media. I'm like an Uber fan, you know? And so he's like, there's all these incredible, like doing like these hard boulder problems on, on this, this climbing wall on a sailboat. They'd have to take it down when, take the climbing wall down when they were sailing and then they would put it up when the weather was good. And they spent three months sailing across the ocean they had to, yeah, dock in Mexico, and then they kind of climbed in a few places, getting to Yosemite. They show up in Yosemite, like, after huge storms in the middle of winter. There's probably ice fall every day, and they're just, like, going at it up there. I'm texting with them every day and giving them beta, and it's awesome. I, he's, he's, a pheno- amazing. he's a phenomenal climber. What's his name? Um, Seb is his first name. I okay. Should, um, yeah. yeah, I'm, like, looking at my phone right now. Look at the, look at, <laughs> look at the pictures of him, like, on the sailboat. Oh, climbing that's while. awesome. Yeah, yeah. The middle of the ocean, just training away, like thinking about the dog <laughs> What's his Instagram? Uh, uh, Sad Birthday Climber. All right, I'm gonna check him yeah. out. No, I, wow. he's like, I think, it, I mean, it's kind of, it's one of these things in climbing, like a lot of things in climbing, they seem so dumb in some ways, like sail across the ocean to climb. Like, why don't you just get on a plane and get over here? It'd be so much easier. But, um, it's like, in some ways, it's also kind of like the best ideas. It makes this like grand adventure that's gonna take half a year or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's God, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, speaking of sport climbing, I was like on your Wikipedia page and um, just as I was preparing for the interview, and it was like Tommy Caldwell, the first climber to climb 515B. And I was like, is that true? And then <laughs> I was must reading have been about. recently updated. <laughs> yeah. But it's like the Flex Luther, is that? And Wikipedia is often wrong, but like, so you did the climb Flex Luther. I remember reading about that in the magazines, probably what early two thousands or something. Uh, let's see. That was yeah, like two thousand four, something like that. And then it sat unrepeated for seventeen years until and then, this year. Yeah. Um, Maddie Hong got on it. Yeah, Maddie yeah. Hong, and then Carlos Traverse did it. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's an interesting thing because. They did it, and they're like, this thing's really hard. And I did it at a yeah. time where we, you know, it was the hardest thing I d- did. But right. there was, you know, I was no Chris Sharma. Like, there, yeah. you know, I wasn't as good as any of those guys. But it's a really yeah. funky style. Like, you got to tape your fingers and do some crack moves. You got to tape. You gotta, oh, nice. Yeah, you got to, like, you got to, there's, like, this weird hand jam on it. You got to cool. knee pad up. And it's just, like, really, really bizarre climbing. And it's, plus, it's at a crag that is really, the conditions are hard. You have to either climb the, mon- in the yeah. What's the name of that crag? Uh, the, the Fortress of Fortress Solitude. Fortress of Solitude, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah I yeah. climbed it in the middle of winter, like, had to post hole for an hour up through the snow to get there every day to work on it. And then, because we didn't really realize you could just climb at night back then. It's such a sunny cliff, even in the middle huh. of winter. Oh, wow. And so, but now, people go and they just climb with headlamp really? at night. And so, they don't, cool. they do it a little bit different seasons now. Yeah. Um, but... It's also it was it's a couple things like that climb we didn't rate climbs back then. There was this brief period of time where Chris Sharma was anti rating yeah. things and uh-huh. so therefore so was I. Yeah. And so we were just like, Oh, it's just harder than anything I've done. So nobody really knows how hard it was. And I didn't think it was that hard, uh-huh. honestly. But um it was right after I chopped off my finger and it was kinda like my proving grounds that I could still climb hard. So I had this mm-hmm. extra like angsty sort of motivation mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to do it and um and then it's also we were really anti-chipping like really anti-chipping yeah, of yeah. any sort uh-huh. so like i used only a toothbrush to clean the thing and it's really chossy limestone mm-hmm. so i think people came up there afterwards and things were breaking off like if you grabbed anything i didn't grab a million times it would break mm-hmm. off and so people were like I think this route is just kind of not that good and <laughs> really chossy and things are breaking and it's probably changing. Um, so I'm curious actually to go back. I, I, I want to, cool. I've been trying to find a time to go back there this, this season and climb on it again after it's been repeated and see if it is totally different. Cause maybe it wasn't 15 B when I did it. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I know yeah, Carlos was... like, I think it's the same. I think it's, we probably are climbing it the same way, but who knows? Oops. Yeah. 20 years of erosion too of limestone like <laughs> yeah changing and yeah, yeah weather and, and totally. everything like that i just i thought it was kind of random i was like tommy caldwell's not the first climber to climb 515b <laughs> i was like oh maybe that is legit <laughs> yeah this summer i, I kind of got a kick out of catching some like random instagram lives of you and honald like commentating on stuff for the olympics which was you guys he, well yeah alex was supposed to be a full-on commentator but he but he uh he was like B team commentator, so he got booted because oh. of COVID. 
Dang. And so that we did a few things together, like the yeah. Olympic channel, like Instagram channel or something, or some Olympic channel thing had us commentate something together, I think. Yeah, you guys have good banter together. Yeah, I mean, Alex uh, has good banter in general, and yeah. it's pretty easy to just Right, just kind of <laughs> chime in. Um, yeah. Is the Olympics something you would have been interested in at 25 or whenever, like however old the Olympian climbers are right now? Probably like if I yeah. felt like I was a contender and I had a chance to be in the Olympics, that would have been cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never did great in competitions. Like it's weird, like on big walls and on big mountains, the more pressure that's when I like really get in the zone and perform well, but it's totally not that way in competitions for mm-hmm. me. Like I kind of freak out and mm-hmm. don't really, pref- you know, I never felt like I climbed my best in competitions where I'd see people around me, like climb two grades harder than they would climb any time outside of competition. And I always like, wished that i was like that but i definitely yeah, wasn't that makes sense i mean yeah being the big wall um what do you uh what are your thoughts on like climbing being in the olympics uh i was totally stoked it was in the olympics and i um was sort of expecting it to be a bigger moment than it was kind of like i was like well when free solo and the dawn wall came out this like kind of changed climbing a little bit and i was like climbing's gonna change again because of the olympics and I don't know if it really did like it it was this like you couldn't really view it that easily and mm-hmm. um have you guys listened to Honold's podcast that you're, ma- you're making gold? me think about that yeah, yeah. I, did, I did think of like his anal- that had a yeah. series of kind of olympic um focused podcasts that do an incredible job of like analyzing it all and informing you about it and talking about the reasons that it didn't really work that well it didn't really highlight the culture of climbing at all like skateboarding was in the olympics this year right and the skateboarding did highlight the culture like you know they're all kind of wearing these like punk clothes and there there's like this obvious camaraderie between all the people and the climbers were just like these like super serious like athletes that were just in isolation backstage and they would come out one at a time. And, you know, sometimes they can make that work by profiling each individual and giving their life story, but they didn't really do that with climbing. And so it just didn't work the way that I wished it did. Do you think it needed, and I know they talked about this in the climbing goal podcast too, but do you think they needed like a Sharma? Uh, just like, yeah, maybe that was like Sean asked me today who won the Olympics and climbing. I, I don't even know. I well, that was another reason it totally it totally went wrong because they botched the um, like the way that it was scored. Oh, OK, like the you know, the, it was it, it all came down to speed climbing in this weird way. <laughs> right. And um, and the guy who won, he won basically because the two people that he sped climb against just fell off and didn't even get a score. And so he did sort of okay in the bouldering, sort of okay in the um, lead climbing. And then he won the speed climbing, but his time wasn't even close to the fastest time. It was just mm. because the people they climbed against just fell off. Mm. And so it was like this weird thing. I think they would they would do it differently if, if they could do it over. I did not even know how politically active you were until the last few years, especially listening to Peter Horgan's um, interview with you on The Climbing Advocate podcast um and i really yeah have a lot of respect for the the work that you do um climate climate change in general to me feels like such a big impossible like task (laughs) um to work towards do you feel like that in your mind too and I feel like there's a chance, you know, I feel like there's right. a chance humanity humanity is going to persevere and we got to yeah. like get as many people bought in as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like the more disasters happen, I mean, freaking a thousand homes just burned down, like not far from here just the other day. And if yeah. that happens, I think people are really going to start changing the ways and hopefully it happens fast enough. Like I, you know, people are, a lot of people are like by 2050, everything's got to change. And I'm like, I feel like we might have a little more time than that, you know? Yeah. And so I'm, I guess maybe I'm an optimist in that way, but I also like love the idea of big projects and what's a better big project than trying to save the world, you know? <laughs> that's <laughs> the perfect way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, what is your what is your climate activism looking like right now on like a day to day basis? It's um, pretty varied. Like it seems uh, like the last bunch of years, it's been land protection. Like mm-hmm. I think public lands is like a huge key to that. Mm-hmm. Like actually today, I spent um, a good chunk of today planning this trip to the Tongass National Forest, which mm-hmm. is the biggest temperate rainforest. You know, everybody thinks of the Amazon as the uh, 
lungs of the earth, but actually in North America, we got some pretty big rainforest too. And Southern, that kind of like Southwestern Alaska is a huge rainforest that's mm. just getting logged. And there's this whole roadless rule thing that I think Clinton protected. He like banned roads basically in this whole giant rainforest. So they couldn't get in there and extract the old growth, which are huge f- for carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm. And then Trump, of course, like rolled it back and then Biden's mm-hmm. putting it back, but it's always in jeopardy and there's all these moving parts. But this place has great climbing. It's got some of the world's best fishing. It's got some of the world's best sea kayaking. Uh, it's got surfing. It's like this incredible potential place that's mm-hmm. sort of remote though for all these sports so i'm like this is like this really great place where outdoor enthusiasts could go and be a big part of this conversation to help save this place it's so beautiful i mean it's a rainforest in southern alaska um and so yeah i mean I, like this trip will be one where i go and you know probably make a film write some articles maybe i'll go a couple times like maybe i'll go once in the winter and ski and go once in the summer and then you know one idea is to after i get to know the place then bring lawmakers up there and actually bring them in there and take Mm -hmm. them on little adventures and being like you know you got to see these places to really want to protect them and um but also i just get to go on adventures there um yeah so that kind of stuff i i did a lot of advocacy with bears ears i got to know um you know some of the people in in the tribes and the people that live down there and it really kind of changed my view of the place so you know, I try and help raise money for organizations that are protecting these places and talk to lawmakers. And I don't like the politics that much. Like, I don't love politics, honestly, yeah. but it seems like sort of the best mechanism. So I just kind of deal with it when I can, when I have to. Um, but what I love is like going to these places and learning them and then telling stories about how magical they are and how we need to protect them. So that's kind of my main focus, but also, you know, like I'm, like I'm, working on trying to figure out how to make Estes Park this with a, with a bunch of other people, but trying to make Estes Park like this kind of pilot program for like um, solar and clean energy. Like little towns are kind of the best places mm. to figure out how to do that by themselves. And if it works in little towns then it can spread mm. elsewhere. And so like yesterday I was on a call with a bunch of motivated Estes people and we we're brainstorming ways to try and figure that out too. So I don't know, it's, it goes all different directions. Mm-hmm. And it and it all feels like this big. It's like climbing a mountain, right? Like there's this big logistical thing that you're trying to solve, and you get into it, and you got to figure out all the tricks and logistics. And I like that process. So you can do that with climbing, but you can also kind of do that with like you know climate change stuff. Totally, it's like that question is like, what's your dawn wall? Yeah, it's like it almost seems like that for you is is climate activism. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, and, yeah. like, I'm, I'm really into solar. Like, I bought this house, of, uh, like, 10 years ago that had this old-school solar system on the roof, and I started tinkering with it and trying mm-hmm. to maximize that house's efficiency and try and make it, like, you know, not burn any gas. And so, you know, I kind of did that on that house, and then I'm doing it on this house. And then I've always brought solar up on the Dawn Wall, and I had it in my van. So, I, I don't know, I just kind of, like, love that, love getting into it. It's just, like, a side kind of geek-out hobby thing. Yeah, you, you mentioned Bears Ears, and I've seen in some of your writing you've talked about learning and unlearning from some of the indigenous leaders that you've interacted with um, there and up in um, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Yeah, um, yeah I did an incredible trip there as well. Yeah. Into a place that doesn't really have, like, rocks. <laughs> right, <laughs> it has yeah. mountains, but uh-huh. it doesn't have rocks, but it was still one of my favorite trips ever. Yeah, um, you know, what, what do you mean by that, By especially, like, unlearning? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we have... Like it's the way that we view land as this incredibly colonistic thing. Like we own this land, you know, we have private property. We, you know, it's something that belongs to us. You know, even Patagonia's campaign, the president stole our land. Like that was powerful, but also flawed in a lot of ways. Like your land, like the indigenous way to view the land is it's not your land. Like the land is like a deity, right? To them, it's like, you know, it's, it's the spiritual center. There's like this mad respect. And if you have that respect, you're going to care for it deeply the same way you would for like a family member or something. And so if we can get a little bit closer to that, I think it would solve a lot of problems. And so unlearning that colonistic, like ownership mentality and learning that way to respect it is, is really powerful. Like I think the indigenous climate activists are the most powerful speakers and have the best message out of all of them for sure. 
Like when I'm around them trying to figure out how to protect land, I'm like, I feel like a baby, you know, <laughs> like I know nothing. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, Eric Murdoch was, was saying, we just interviewed Eric. He'll, he'll probably run after yours or maybe before, but he said the same thing. He said, like, I feel like just I'm a child when I'm around these indigenous leaders and yeah. just listening. And totally. Yeah. yeah. Sean, I think it's time for your special segment. What are we calling this? Campfire questions. Campfire questions. <laughs> nice. Here, I can scoot over here if you want. Campfire questions. So curious. Campfire questions. These are just, uh, you know, quick rapid fire questions, things that we kind of kick around the campfire uh, out at the crag. And we get a couple quick ones, and then we have a couple more in-depth ones, and I think we'll, we'll start with those. Um, we talk a lot about success and a lot of your interviews had but i'm really curious about your favorite failure uh my favorite failure hmm i mean one weird thing about climbing is you can fail over and over again and then you just keep trying until you succeed and i feel like most of my major climbs have been like that like i just kind of keep coming back but i i mean maybe i'll maybe i'll point out a few i did this trip when i was just out of, actually I was still in high school I bailed from my last six months of high school to uh, go to Europe with Christian Griffith um, who's a you know kind of famous old boulder climber he's um, and at the time he was like uh, he was like Chris Sharma is now or something right mm-hmm. like he had done all he would he'd kind of like revolutionized climbing in some ways he was kind of this really out there eccentric character and he was past his peak, but he was still trying to like climb his hardest thing ever. And so I went to Europe with him, and he had this goal of climbing the the Rose and the Vampire, the Rage de Vivre at Bukes, France. And I was this little kid going with this like kind of climbing icon. But he's this really eccentric guy who like, um, you know, he had, he has this climbing company called Verve, which is all this like kind of sexy climbing gear and. <laughs> You know, and and I'd never I'd been to France with my dad, but I was like renting the Jeet with him. And he was sort of living in the vein of these of the Brit climbers who completely starved themselves before sending like they would and dehydrate themselves. So I think I was there with him like a month. And I think the last two weeks he ate like a Clementine and a biscuit every day. (laughs) I was like this little kid being like, really, is this what you got to do to send? And he, and he literally was like in bed, just like groaning every night. And he was like walking really slowly to the crag. He just like had no energy. He was completely starving himself. And he meant, and he managed to send the last day of the trip. It was unbelievable. It worked. Um, but I, on the other hand, was like just like eating giant bowls of pasta and tons of chocolate, and I was like, I'm not gonna do that. I'd had this experience in wrestling. I was a wrestler in in high school and middle school, and they had tried, you know, wrestling. That's kind of a thing too. Like you dehydrate and starve yourself. And I'd had this experience where we had a really good wrestling team. My dad was the coach actually, and it, they were like undefeated for like a decade or something in all wow. all wrestling matches in the district. And then there was this other team, though, the year that I wrestled, it was, it was kind of getting close. Like, there was seeming like they were going to beat us, potentially. And so they decided to have their whole team just, like, starve themselves and drop a weight class for the final match. And we just demolished them completely. And so I was like, that, that doesn't work. Like, <laughs> that just doesn't work. Like, that, that's not a good strategy. So I just, like, wouldn't do that in France. But yet I was trying this heart, this route. Um, it would have This 14B would have been my hardest route at the time. And I spent the last week and a half of the trip which at that age feels like an eternity working on this one route mm. and i left without doing it and i just felt so devastated at the time you know mm. nowadays i'm like oh whatever a week and a half that's not that's, that's not a time <laughs> commitment at all but back then i was like oh i failed on this failure i should have starved myself just clementines <laughs> just clementines <laughs> yeah and then, uh, you know, I had moments on the Don Wall where I would, like, end the season. I'd be like, that's it. I'm done. Like, mm-hmm. I cannot come back here. This is just taking up too much of my life. And I would always feel kind of heavy. Would that change in perspective to I'm going back? Would that happen quickly, slowly? I mean, one year I was, like, legitimately thinking I was going to be done. And I was like, I'm, you know, I, that was the year that, 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 that my son Fitz was born. I was like, I'm going to give myself a month. I can't do this as a dad. Yeah. And then I came back. You know, I, I came back home and I was like kind of moping around the house. It was like sad because I felt like I had this love affair, this like big dream. I was so obsessed by this climb. And then I gave up 
and I was kind of moping around my house, and then and then my wife back actually kind of changed my mind. She's like, you know, we could just bring the whole family. Like, we'll bring Fitz to Yosemite. We'll just live in the van. It'll be sweet. Like, what what would be a better way to like show your son passion than just like having him come with us and watch you up there? And so she changed my mind, and um, I went back. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Another question here: What is an unusual habit or something kind of absurd that you love that might surprise people? An unusual habit that's absurd, or just something absurd, you know, like some really esoteric thing, or uh, no, man, I'm pretty, I'm pretty non-surprising in that way. <laughs> I have this weird take. Before bouldering, I like chalk and and like blow on my fingers incessantly in a way that all my climbing friends give me shit for it's like this weird tick i can't help it i'm not sure why that it doesn't happen on roots it doesn't happen on big walls bouldering for some reason um let's see there's gotta be something though i feel like when you have kids like you start doing all these weird kid things again you know like um you know, watching Disney. I, I'm I, I'm into Disney movies. You know, like they're the they're actually the best movies made. I think they are actually the best movies made these days. They're super solid. <laughs> I agree. A young child as well, so yeah. I got into the Disney in puppets. I've been playing a lot of puppets. Lately, yeah. So. yeah, yeah. You like you're like you know when you're not a parent, you look at all these parents getting into these kids stuff, and you're like, I'm never gonna do that. It's just <laughs> not cool. And then you kind of find yourself doing it. it just happens one day. You wake <laughs> up playing puppets. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, one, one last long form question and then we get the quick fires, uh, in the last five years, what new belief, um, habit or behavior has most positively impacted your life? I mean, I think that's the five years is probably when I've gotten into the climate change activism stuff and that it feels like this mission, it it feels similar to like how I felt about climbing, but more noble, Mm. (laughs) you know, feels like it actually has the chance to, you know, like it's, it's actually necessary in the world. Whereas climbing is just kind of, it's probably, you know, if climbing went away tomorrow, the world would still, (laughs) still rotate just fine. You know, it's still fire. Wouldn't it? The the world. Yeah. All right. The quick fires sit starts. Yay or nay. Yay. Yeah. Anything. Coffee or tea. Coffee and tea. I do both. Double fist and <laughs> yeah. uh, ring locks or off widths? Uh, I like it all. I don't know. I can't choose. Actually, I don't love off widths. I'll take that. I'm pretty good at off widths because you just have to do them to climb big walls. Um, but I would never crag off width. Okay. okay. But I would crag ring lock. Okay. Yeah. Uh, two foot or splitter? Hmm. Man. Another one that's uh, maybe two foot, just because they feel a little more u- unique when you're from North America. Yeah. If I had, if I could just choose one to climb right now, I'd probably choose two foot. Come, uh, Biggie or Tupac? Ah, uh, boy, probably Biggie a little bit. Right, yeah, Biggie's yeah, yeah. always on my on my rotating playlist when I when I moonboard. Nice, baby, yep. baby. Yep. Um, and then last one. Uh, what book have you most given as a gift? Ah, uh, I'm most given as a gift. You know, I'm I'm constantly, especially these days. This might just be in the top of my mind right now because it's it's relatively current for me. It's not current book, but it's current for me. Well, there's probably two. One of them is um, uh, endurance, the Shackleton story. I'm kind of into Incredible. those. Uh, yeah, epic like, um you know, polar exploring stories. And, um, there's other, there's a lot of other ones out there, but that book was really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that one. And then I recommend this book to everybody these days. This guy named William Finnegan wrote this incredible surfing memoir called barbarian days. And, um, it was like my fat, it was my favorite surfing memoir ever. And I had recommended it to tons of people. I, I read it while I was writing my boat book, which like his writing style influenced me, his way of viewing kind of like sp- um, adventure kind of influenced me in a way. Um, but his way of just like visually telling, like, you know, painting these pictures, he's like the master, he's like a five sixteen writer, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was a, kind of an Uber fan. And then randomly he contacted me cause he's a staff writer for the New Yorker. And, uh, and he like, he's like, I want to do a I want to do a pr- profile in the New Yorker. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, you're like, honestly, one of, one of my favorite writers I've ever read. And then he just like randomly reached out. So he came to Estes this summer and we spent a week just hanging out together. And 
he's traveled all over the world and he's like discovered surf spots and he's been like a war correspondent. He's lived like six lives. He's like the world's most interesting man. So he was like really incredible to spend a week of time with. And then he wrote this piece for the New Yorker. So oh, incredible. Yeah. Stick clips or no stick clips? <laughs> I trash talk stick clips, but I do use them sometimes. Like I try not to, but I did this trip with this, um, this guy that worked for like, a phone company like AT&T or something to the Red River Gorge and he had this crazy thing that you used to measure the height of telephone poles so it was and he turned it into a stick clip so he had like a <laughs> like a 60 foot stick clip a big wall stick yeah. clip <laughs> and so he he didn't clap that much he just went and equipped all the roots with draws for us he would, he would put up all the draws with a stick clip um, wow so yeah shout out to that guy yeah so i mean i kind of into that kind of stick lip but living his best life yeah totally <laughs> oh that's the end of the campfire questions thanks for yeah, that Tommy. Yeah. yeah thank you so much for your time tommy i know you're yeah i know love it time is valuable and we're super grateful so. no this is fun yeah. i love i really love like doing this the real climber stuff you know and i feel like the zine and your guys podcast really is cool well thank you we're, we're trying and you inspire us i know i said that a million times but yeah it's real awesome That was the first episode of season three. Hope you all enjoyed that. Super, super fun. Thanks to Sean Matasavich, publisher emeritus of The Climbing Zine, for tagging along for this one. It was really helpful to have him there, as I was actually quite nervous um, to do that interview, um, partially because it was Tommy Caldwell and partially because I just didn't want to ask him stupid questions that he's been asked a million times. So hopefully I got to the heart of something there. I really enjoyed it. Hope you all enjoyed that conversation. Music for this episode and this season is again brought to you by Devin Dabney. Devin's got another great podcast as well, another niche climbing podcast called the American Climbing Project. Encourage you all to check that one out. And we're grateful to have his music again for this season. And our digital editor and producer is again Chad Rich. Chad's really the co creator of this podcast, and it's a blessing to have him involved through all the ups and downs and we're going to keep cranking out good conversations and stories here in 2022 signing off from beautiful durango colorado i'm luke mihal peace